I will be reading from 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Morning, church. Would you open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 6? We didn't have classes here at the building Wednesday night, and so uh, Gil and I made our way over to First Baptist Church to do a little ice skating. You heard me. Ice skating. John Hittema is their senior pastor there, and he's from Canada, and he's an ex-hockey player. Uh, and he's led the way in building an outdoor skating surface on their property. Now, you wear real ice skates, but the, uh, what do you call it, the, the surface that you would skate on is some kind of synthetic. And I don't know exactly what it's made out of, and I don't really know how accurate it is. Because Gail and I have only skated once or twice on ice ourselves, and so we really couldn't be able to tell you that. But i got to tell you, on one chilly evening in March, we gave it a try and hung out with some great folks. <laughs> but there was this one lady, and I'm telling you, she stole the show all evening long. I mean, she was skating all over the place. You wouldn't think that in Kerrville, Texas, we had a talented ice skater. But it's spring break, and you've got people who come through, and you just never know who's going to be here. But I, as I watched this girl skate, I thought it's the Winter Olympics all over again, especially when she landed a triple Lutz in front of us. There she is. That's a little bit small picture, but that's my wife, Gail. And it's really hurt her deeply that you're laughing at that. Before the night was over, she and I both, did I say Lutz? I meant Klutz, triple Klutz. Before the night was over, we had a great time trying all kinds of stuff, but we did not try a, a triple Lutz. But I do, I do want to start by saying, but what if, what if I told you that she had landed a triple Lutz having only skated twice, someone who's just slightly over 30 years old, all right? Skating on a synthetic surface. What if I told you she actually did it? Would you say that's a miracle? Well, you might, but it really wouldn't be. <laughs> An accident. <laughs> but it really wouldn't be a miracle. Not by definition anyways. It might be amazing. It might be remarkable. It might be stunning. But not at all beyond what's natural. We just got through watching the Winter Olympics. We've seen what... Now, professional, high-level athletes can do, but it's still, it's natural. It's within a human being's ability. They're capable of doing that. It's not quite the same as turning water into wine instantly. Not at all. It's not the same as speaking to a man who's been lame for decades, and he stands up, and he starts walking, and he starts leaping at just a command. Those things are miracles taking a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and giving thanks over them and then feeding 10 to 12,000 people, that's a miracle. And maybe the one that surpasses all of them is described a little bit later, and it would be where John witnessed not just the feeding of people, not just the healing of people, but he and his 11 brothers get in a boat. They row about three to four miles across the lake of an eight-mile trip. And this storm comes up that causes them to be afraid for their lives. And Jesus, who had stayed behind to do a little him and God time alone, joins them. 
Not by taking his own little dinghy out to meet them. No, their rabbi comes walking on water. Not skiing, not surfing, but walking to them on the water. And they don't think, oh, look at what Jesus is doing now. No, they're scared to death. They think this isn't natural. This may be supernatural, and, and they think this has got to be a ghost. They're not even thinking it's Jesus at all until he speaks and says, don't worry, it's me. And that would have been miracle enough if he had just walked out to them on the water, but, but it goes even further as John tells the story. Jesus gets in the boat, and the next thing they know, bang, they're on the other side of the lake. No rowing, no fighting the storm, boom, they're there. That's a miracle. And if the story of Gail landing at Triple Lutz actually happened, you might tell a person or two or three or four. But John didn't see a stunning acrobatic feat. John didn't see something that just made you go, wow. John saw an absolute bona fide miracle. As a matter of fact, this ex-fisherman lived at about 30 A.D., and he saw everything that I just described this morning, and he did so in person. He didn't hear them as a story. He saw them lived. He saw them as an eyewitness, and he felt compelled to make sure that new Christians and those that he hoped would become new Christians had more than just some verbal story to pass on. He wanted them to have a written account to read and to retell whatever and whenever they wanted to. For centuries, these accounts have convinced millions of seekers that this man Jesus is who he claimed to be, sent from God the Son. And those are the credentials. Those are the miracles that, that have led people to Christ and in this room here have been a part of you saying, I think he could be the Son of God. But those are only signs, as John is going to be telling us all throughout this study. They're signs that point to two of the greatest signs ever, and you know what they are. They're in two parts. One is that first sign of him taking on himself the sin every one of us deserved at an execution spot called the cross, and then proving he was capable of doing so by three days later walking out of a grave, not walking on water, but walking out of his own grave, and being seen by over 500 people in a resurrected body. Now that's a miracle. And that's what all of these signs that John is telling us about are pointing to. They're amazing, they're stunning, they're supernatural, but they're nothing like those miracles. And if you're here today and you're visiting, I've caught you up to a series that we're calling Life Matters, a study in the Gospel of John. And this is a Jesus that we're talking about. And we take up a story just hours after Jesus fed those tens of thousands, just hours after he walked on water to his disciples to join him in a boat, just hours after that, a crowd follows them all the way around the lake because they're like groupies on a Garth Brooks tour. They can't get enough of this guy and all that he's doing. And so they're even to walk all the way around the lake to get close to him. And John picks up the story and says, when they found him back across the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, you've come looking for me not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you and filled your stomachs for free. Don't waste your energy striving for perishable food like that. 
Work for the food that sticks with you, food that nourishes your lasting life, food the Son of Man provides. He and what he does are guaranteed by God, the Father, to last. Bow with me, would you? What a morning, Lord. Just thank you for the chance to praise you. Thank you for the chance to see our children praise you and to pray to you. Thank you for the chance now to hear from you. And Lord, that is my prayer. I know we're not the only ones asking this morning to be heard from. I know John Hittiman is asking that as he preaches at First Baptist that you would, you would speak through him. Would you do that? Would you speak through every person who stands today on your behalf to tell a world about Jesus? Would you help them do that? And would you help us have ears to hear about Jesus? Because, God, we realize that we are hard of hearing. Please, come be our living bread today. For we ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said. Jesus warns us, don't waste your time seeking out food that's going to spoil. But rather, seek food that will never spoil. And this morning, Jesus is going to use a metaphor that we are all not just familiar with, <laughs> but if you're like me, in love with. Food. I don't just need food. I'll confess this. I like food a lot. I don't like missing meals. If my math is right, I've been eating close to 61,000 meals in my lifetime so far and loved most every minute of it. And as you can probably tell by looking at me, I am no newbie to food. I have missed very few meals in my lifetime. And I am sure that on the holidays of Thanksgiving and Christmas, the quantity of food consumed covered a few of those meals that I ever missed. And some meals are just memorable. You've got some meals you remember. There's a meal that I enjoyed with that pretty skater at Slotsky's on our first date. Never forget that meal. There's a meal when I interviewed for my job in Ruidoso as their preaching minister. We went to Cattle Barons for ribs. I don't remember the ribs so much for their taste, but because that's how I wore them on my shirt. I remember the two, two, and two at the Log Cabin Inn in Ruidoso, New Mexico. Two eggs, two pieces of bacon, two blueberry pancakes, and only two calories. Yeah, that's a story. Used to go there and celebrate with those exact features of breakfast whenever I had a successful hunt. I remember the huge ribeye steaks at Outback, green chili cheeseburgers at Chef Loopy's, the all-you-can-eat seafood buffet at Alto Country Club. That included crab legs. I remember our fajitas cooked on our own little hibachi in our own little RV that we would take the truth or consequences to the lake there or to the National Forest. Question, is your Is your appetite for food getting you a little hungry? The holiday meals, though, for me were the best. Still are. They caused me to lose sleep some nights the night before them. The smells of the sage and the dressing, the smoke and the turkey, just the sight of Carlene's chocolate pie will make me cry. The smell of cranberry muffins on Christmas morning before we open our stockings. Am I killing you yet? Why do you... 
Why do we like food so much? It tastes great, that's why. And it's also, there's something about it that God hardwired into our souls that, that not just to have it to get by and to have enough energy to survive, but, but to fellowship with and, and to engage people with. That's why I remember so many of the meals and the people connected with them. I remember the dinner of our second honeymoon that Gail and I experienced at Cloudcroft, New Mexico when she was my new bride again. It wasn't the food that I remember so much as the miracle that I had with me who was sharing it with me. I remember the meals that I had with some of you, taco stack-ups at our community groups, rehearsal dinners out at the Camp Eagle with Steve and Danelle, prime rib by the fireplace. It was amazing. I remember the guinea fowl that we were given in Bazua, Ghana. <laughs> was enjoying that guinea fowl with Jerry Thornton and his wife, Fran. It was a thank you gift from one of the students there. We're just grateful that they had come and established a school there. What a joy it was to receive that gift, and an even greater joy after eating peanut soup for a week to have fried guinea fowl. It's amazing. I love food, and I'm grateful for having anything to eat, especially when you've been to a third-world country, and to realize it doesn't take long to be reminded that food's not just a luxury, it's a necessity. We all share that in common. But of all those 61,000 meals, we also share another thing in common with them. I always get hungry again. Even on Thanksgiving, when I've waddled away from the table for the first time, two hours later after a break in the game with Dallas, I'm grazing on a few more olives and another small piece of Gail's pecan pie. All of those meals leave us hungry again. And we get that. And I think we get that Jesus is probably talking about more than food here in John chapter 6. Actually, he reduces the struggles of life to two things. We either strive for food that rots or we strive for food that lasts forever. Food that rots is anything tied to this world and only this world. Yes, actual food itself, but also anything for which you get hungry for, that your hunger returns to. To feed you, achievements, awards, applause, money, comfort, security, anything that stays in a grave. That can be food that spoils. Now the food that lasts, on the other hand, is anything that is forever. Eternal love, eternal life, the eternal and amazing presence of our Lord God. And how do you get to that food? One source, Jesus is going to say. Me, the Son of Man. I can feel you when nothing else can. Now that's where, where John 6 takes us to, but here's the question you've got to deal with today. What are you feeding on? What's filling you? What are you pursuing with that hunger in your life? Esau came back from hunting and he was starving. So hungry, in fact, that he traded his brother for his birthright. He traded his brother. He traded his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew. Something he was convinced he had to have in the moment, and he was willing to trade that for his future. And guess what? In less than six hours, he was hungry again. And David was starving. But his appetite was for another man's wife. She was bathing, and the sight of her created such a hunger within him that he ignored his own bread that he had to satisfy his sexual needs, and he took somebody else's bread to do that. And guess what? In a matter of hours, he was hungry again. 
Solomon was craving power. He fed his appetite by marrying other women of other countries to forge alliances to increase his power base. The king had over a thousand wives and concubines. Just because they weren't satisfying him, no, he needed those alliances to increase his hunger for power. Did any of them satisfy him? No. And neither did the power. I love Shel Silverson's poem about little hungry mungry. Hungry mungry had an appetite nobody could fill. And so he ate everything that was at the dinner table. And then he took some soup and he poured it on the tablecloth. And then he ate the tablecloth. And then the table. His parents complained and so he ate his parents. He ate the neighborhood and so the U.S. Army sent in people and he eats, he eats the U.S. Army. He plows through everything. He eats the whole world, Silverstein says. He ate Egypt's pyramids and every church in Rome and all the grass in Africa and all the ice in Nome. He ate each hill in, the, in green Brazil and then he, to make things worse, he decided for dessert he'd eat the universe. He started with the moon and the stars and as soon as he was done, he gulped the clouds, he sipped the wind and gobbled up the sun. Then sitting there in the cold, dark air, he started to nibble his feet. Then his legs, his hips, his neck, his lips, till he just sat there gnashing his teeth. Because nothing was nothing was nothing, but nothing was left to eat. It's a great poem except for the cannibalism. Can't even say the word, cannibalism. Hungry mongry is in all of us. There's this insatiable hunger that every one of us has for something or someone that stands between us and the living bread of God. We can't get enough. Hungry mongry is any woman or man plowing through life trying to get filled by control or sex or pleasure or a new spouse or extreme sports or new toys or accomplishments, both of my own, my kids, my grandkids. So is something wrong with fun, Jim? Is something wrong with accomplishments, Jim? Heavens, no. God, God created fun. God designed us for accomplishments. It's just when those accomplishments and that fun is what we try to fill ourselves up with that life gets nuts. That's the food that rots. The food that lasts, on the other hand, is anything that lasts beyond the grave. How do you get this food? We'll underline this promise. Jesus, the Son of Man, gives you this food. You don't buy it. You don't barter for it. You don't earn it. It is an absolute gift. As a matter of fact, in the midst of all this talk about food there in John chapter 6, there just after Jesus has fed the 10,000 and walked on water and is having this conversation about food and that food that rots and that food that lasts, somebody says, well, what in the world does God expect of us? I don't know if somehow in the conversation it was random or just someone showed up that day and they had a question and they're finally going to ask someone they think knows the answer. What is it that God expects of us? What does he want? And Jesus told them, this is the will of God that you believe in the one he has sent. I've put it in yellow so that you can follow along this. What, what is it that God's after? Say it with me, church. This is the will of God that you believe in the one he has sent. One more time. What is it that God wants from us? This is the will of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but when the crowd of food groupies heard it, they replied, 
you must show us more miracles if you want us to believe that you are the Messiah. Give us free bread like this every day, like our fathers had while they journeyed through the wilderness. As the scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven. Well, Jesus responds to this. And he says, first of all, let's make something clear. Number one, Moses didn't give them the bread. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread's a person, the one sent by God from heaven, and he gives life to the world. Well then, sir, please give us this bread every day of our lives. Jesus replied, I'm the bread of life. No one coming to me will ever be hungry again. Those believing in me will never thirst. But the trouble is, as I've told you before, you haven't believed even though you've seen me. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus said, I'm the bread that lasts forever. And a relationship with me exists only because you believe in me. And I love that. Enjoying the bread of life and its impact on me isn't connected to memorizing a given amount of scripture. It isn't tied to walking a given amount on my knees to some temple or some altar. It's not tied to a given amount from my bank account. It's not tied to attending a given amount of church services. No, it is tied to a given amount. But God's the one who does the giving. Listen to me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's the one who does the giving. We do the receiving. And that receiving looks like and is tied to fully embracing Jesus. Putting your full weight on Jesus. It's tied to going all in with Jesus. It's tied to, well Jesus is going to say this, eating Jesus. Very truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Wow. That's kind of weird. Actually, it's kind of hard to hear. It brings back visions of Hannibal Lecter and Silence of the Lambs for some of us. It's a tad startling. And Jesus intends for it to be. Because he's using language here that he hopes gets a crowd's attention. Every now and then you can lose a crowd. I've done that on occasion. Maybe doing that now. Every now and then you can lose one. You've got to do something that gets their attention. Well, Jesus gets their attention. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Now, what he's doing is just using Hebrew idiom, just like we would use American idioms. You've done it on occasion. When you want to try to stop someone from doing harm to themselves or to you, you say, over my dead body. Now, when you say that, you hope you're not actually going to die here in the next couple of seconds, right? But you want them to understand this is serious. When you want to let someone know that they're on the verge of hurting you deeply, you say, well, just cut my heart out, okay? Well, you're hoping they don't whip out the old scalpel or the old case knife and start surgery. You're just hoping to convey... I hope I get your attention with what I'm about to say. That's what idioms do. They're about intensity. They're about passion. When you see your grandkids after being apart from them for a long time and you say, I could just eat you up. You're not being cannibalistic. You're not trying to think, would you pass me the Tabasco sauce? I'm going to have a little elbow here. No, we don't do that. 
but it, it expresses, hey, I'm serious about this. I've missed you so, so much. And Jesus wants this crowd by the sea and this crowd sitting in rows to hear this afresh this morning. I want to hear this afresh this morning. I needed this week to hear this afresh one more time. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. I think it's easy to talk about Jesus as tortilla and Jesus as French bread and Jesus as bagels and Jesus as bolillo rolls and to think he'd like to have a, a part in me. It's kind of almost a cute metaphor. It's almost kind of a nice, quaint. But when he says, I want you to eat my flesh and I want you to drink my blood, he's raising the bar of intensity a little bit, isn't he? I love the passage. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, that sounds kind of almost convenient, doesn't it? It sounds almost cute. Taste God and see that he's good. And, and I hope you do. He'll just, he'll allow, he'll, be, he'll welcome. He's thrilled about just beginning to take a taste. But you know what? There comes a part when he says, I need for you to come all in. I need for you to welcome me all in. And that's not always very easy. It's not always very cute. It's not always very quaint. I want you to eat my flesh and I want you to drink my blood. And in one sense, we just did that today in our communion service. It's part of what we do every week when we come together as a family. And we take that bread and we take that cup and we, we, we take it into ourselves. But you know this, it can be just ritual. And not so much about relationship. Not like some of the meals that I was telling you about in my life and some of the meals that you've enjoyed. And he doesn't put all of this relationship that he hopes that we'll have with him on that meal. Don't, don't let that, that part of our service bear too much weight. But it is serious enough that he warns in 1 Corinthians, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have died because you're playing fast and loose with this thing. It's where he comes to meet us. It's where he comes to offer himself to us again. So let me ask it again. What are you hungry for, church? What are you hungry for? What are you pursuing with that hunger? Is it aimed at him? Is it all in with him? Because it's so easy, you know it as well as I do, to walk through this world and just superficially say, I'm a Christian. To superficially say, I, I'm a follower of Christ. Jesus won't stand for that. He just won't. He wants us to give thought about what we're eating. And you do. You give some thought about what goes in your mouth, don't you? I hope you do. Now, two-year-olds, not so much. But as you grow a little bit older, you think about what you put in your mouth. Well, one young man did. His name's Sam Ballard. He's an ex-rugby player. And when he was 19 years old, he was at a birthday party, his birthday party, and everybody dared him to eat one of these. It's a slug. And you know what? Escargot, we've all, so not we all, some of us have had escargot. Well, that's cooked slug, all right? This is raw slug. And he had no idea that when he ingested that, that it was anything but harmless because it paralyzed him completely. Can't feed himself, can't brush his teeth, he can't do anything. You see, what he did was he ingested a slug that was infected with a disease called rodent lungworm. It's a parasite that slugs usually secure when they ingest feces from contaminated rats. You could have gone all day without hearing that, right? 
Because here's the point. You need to be careful what you're eating. And we try to be. But Jesus is saying, please understand, if you want a relationship with me, it's more than a taste. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my... I want you to come all in. I want you to put your full weight on. I want you to, to invite me in completely. It's because rotten food equals rotten life. A Jesus food means Jesus life. We're running out of time. If this has made you a little bit queasy, maybe a little bit, ah, man, I, I need one more metaphor about food like I need a hole in the head. See, there's another one of those idioms. Nobody really wants a hole in the head, right? So land this plane, sportsman. Well, I'm going to try. When they hear this and they're bothered by it, you know what happens? Some folks leave. Many among his disciples heard this and said, this is a tough teaching, too tough for us to swallow. And many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. No longer followed him. Wow. This Jesus could not only build a crowd, he can preach down a crowd. And you know what, KCC, that's going to happen in this church. If we truly are going to lead ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with Jesus, when they start feeding on Jesus and tasting Jesus and following Jesus, or at least hearing that's what we're calling them to, some are going to say that's too much. And they're not going to stay. They're not. And you know what, Jesus doesn't run after these folks. Because what he's looking for is for those who will pray, give us this day our daily bread. We're looking to you, Father. Let, let, let that will that you have in your mind and in your heart come down out of the heavens and in and through us into the world. And, and we're here because, not just because we want to taste or nothing superficial, no, no ritual, relationship is what we're after. That's whom he's calling to be a disciple. Will you come be a part of that? That's what he's looking for. The truth is there are some folks who don't want to be a part of that. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's never easy to see by the seashore or here. It's tough. But it still didn't change this. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Get you some is what he's hoping that we'll do. We're about to sing a song this morning that I actually asked Raymond to change from what he had planned because I thought, Lord, I know it's easy for me to teach a lesson on being all in, but it's hard for me to stop for a moment and examine myself to say, is that where I'm at? Have I really feasted on you? When I say I'm hungry about something in this world and I'm pursuing that with passion, I can't wait to be a part of that. Do I think of you? If not, why not? Is he the air that you breathe? Is he the bread that you're hungry for? That's what we're going to proclaim together as a church. That's where we want to go, Lord. That's where we want to go. And maybe you came here to, this morning and there's some stuff going on in your life that, man, I, I'm just trying to survive, Jim. I'm not trying to thrive. I'm just trying to survive. You let Jesus be your bread, you'll do more than just survive. You will thrive, not just for the moment, but forever. Is he the air that you breathe? Is he the food that you're hungry for? 
or we're going to sing and announce that. And if he's not, and there needs to be some changes in your life, we've got elders that will be at the back, and I'll be up here at the front. And you can just come and say, Jim, that's, that's not what I've been eating lately. I've not been eating very well. I need someone to help me clean up my diet. Oh, please let your diet be clean. It matters what your eyes eat. It matters what your ears eat. It matters what your heart eats. It matters because when that virus or that worm food gets in there, it just destroys life. But when it's Jesus, it's a life that's in there. It brings life. It just does. And so we're going to be a church who continually comes back to some tough teachings sometimes that are hard to hear because we realize that we live in an uphill, in a downhill world, and what Jesus has called us to do is uphill. Believing is not easy. Not, not in this world. Not hanging on to our, it is not easy, and Jesus understands that. So that's, that's why he's saying, I, I need for you to work on that, putting your full weight on me. So let's pray. Father, we need your help. That Some of us walked in here today, and you're the last thing really on our mind. We had to be here. Had to come with our parents had to come in a van that was taking us because that's what we do. Had to come with my husband because that's what we do. But you're not the air that we breathe. You're not the food that, we, that we're hungry for. But you've started stirring something in us to draw us to that. And we want to take the next step of that, whatever that is. You know what that is, Father. Nudge them to come find a brother or sister to pray with. If there's someone here today to say, I, I'm tired of this earth's food. I want, I want Jesus' food. They want to come and put their faith in him today, Father. We, we want to go public with that and see them immersed in the Christ. So just bring them down front, Father, and we'll start doing that today. But just thank you for coming. You didn't have to offer us this bread, Father, but we welcome it into our lives. And we ask you, Father, please, teach us to eat. <laughs> just like we had to teach children to eat the right food. Would you please, through the power of the Spirit and the loving church, teach us how to eat. We ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everybody said. Let's stand, let's sing.